Welcome to When Movies Were Good, a laid-back discussion about all your favourite films from the silent era up until 1959. You can hear our channel's content on YouTube, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow all new updates and events on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please give us a thumbs up or a good review, whatever your favourite podcast channel allows for. It helps to get us in front of more people. And now, on with the show. Hello everybody and welcome back to another edition of When Movies Were Good here at the Resort Studios, aka My Back Flat. Here in the great city of Melbourne, which has certainly seen better days, but that's fine. And I'm here with my usual guest star, the Jonathan Harris of the podcast, Matt. Hi. Hi. <laughs> I-, I was working on that for ages. Yeah. <laughs> we, you actually um, missed out on mine and Matt's great interpretation of I've got a golden ticket from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yes, well, to look at me, uh, you think I'd um, practice the, <laughs> the inspiration of the song too much. Um, you know, it was a completely um, pointless rendition, but we enjoyed it nonetheless. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah, we, we'll save that for another time, though, because we are doing our Christmas special this year. This will be our last show for the year, but never fear, we will be back early in the new year um, to start, hopefully, 2022 anew. Um, so, Matt, we're doing our Christmas special, and, of course, we have two beautiful, gorgeous films, one in glorious Technicolor, the other one in black and white. So we're doing Meet Me in St. Louis, um, a beautiful vehicle for Judy Garland, um, directed by her also husband, uh, Vincent Minnelli, 1944, and then Miracle on 34th Street, which is a favourite with everyone and has been remade several times. Actually, so is Meet Me in St. Louis. I've had a couple of TV versions of that as well. And that's 1947 with the beautiful Maureen O'Hara and, of course, young Natalie Wood. So, Matt, two very famous and well-known family favourites. Yeah, well, it was, it was two um, great uh, films to end the, this year's season on. Uh, I wonder, actually, if we'll ever run out of um, Christmas specials uh, for our um, podcast, because yeah. I got, obviously there are only so many uh, Christmas films, but mind you, maybe we'll find some sort of uh, pre-1959 uh, version of Die Hard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like like uh, where it just has some very flimsy pretext for... Uh, for being a Christmas film, but uh, but uh, fortunately for this year, we had two very great films to choose from, and uh, for those who don't know, Meet Me in St. Louis, the, one of the main reasons why you have to regard it as a Christmas movie is because it introduced a very famous Christmas carol to the international repertoire. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Have yourself... Sorry. Um, yes, We're love getting it. ready for the uh, merchandise <laughs> album. Um, yeah, actually, and... So, Meet Me in St. Louis, just for those who are or may not be familiar with the film, it's um, uh, it's technically billed as a Christmas musical film. It's 1944 by MGM, but it's rather divided into seasonal, I guess, mini-stories or vignettes, starting with the summer of 1903. So, shot in 1943-44, uh, but we're actually going... So, obviously, St. Louis is the big city in Missouri, and at that particular time, there 
was a world expo, a world fair that was being held in St. Louis and they actually built a lot of things in the city for this fair. So it was technically called the Louisiana Purchase Exposition because it was celebrating the 100th anniversary of when they bought Louisiana from the French, I believe it was. So it was just basically a massive excuse and they used to have these world fairs all the time. We had one here in 1988 in Brisbane. It was the Brisbane World World Expo, but apparently they don't have them anymore because they, they don't make enough money or something. Well, it wouldn't surprise me. They look like they were very big and lavish, but it's actually amazing the important historical role they play because we're not just talking about an excuse to have a good time. Mm. Many of these fairs introduce such important technology, like in the, this particular exposition, the Louisiana Purchase Exposition of... Um, uh, what was it, 1904? Yeah. Yeah, so like that was when many people were introduced to personal motor vehicles, even though mm-hmm. they'd been around for a little bit. Um, uh, early forms of the wireless telephone and radio, uh, electricity. Yes, they also included a lot of sort of uh, cultures of the world exhibits involving real-life humans, which... Yep most anthropologists these days agree are a little bit offensive and yeah. you have to blame them. <laughs> but I try to think more on the Thomas Edison side of the exposition. Yeah, I know. Uh, it was... Exhibition exhibition or exposition? Uh, exposition, I think, because it's yeah. expo. So, yeah. Exposition. <laughs> what a shock. Um, yeah, and they used to be held all the time. I think the last one they said was actually held in Vancouver, like back in the 90s or something, and then they, there was no money in it then. And I guess with the advent of the internet and social media, you don't really need to sort of travel around to look at new things because they can bring it all into your home. So that's kind of a, a, a sad thing to lose. But and also, depending if you're wanting to get money or educate, uh, it has many different aims. Like art fairs are quite interesting because until recently, like they were a popular way for contemporary uh, galleries to uh, like really they'd uh, basically have token shop fronts for the rest of the year and the most of their money was made in the big fairs yeah i mean it's so the you know the whole thing with meet me in st louis is uh, or st louis depending on how you like to pronounce it is you know it's building up to this fair that's going to be in the city you know all the the lead up to it and then the fair went on for quite a few months it wasn't just sort of a week or so anything like that it went on for well, quite a while well they had like whole new buildings yeah especially yeah for so at the end of the film you know a bit of a spoiler alert it's actually they did a grand set piece inside where all the family sort of congregates together and they're looking over at this beautiful new architectural building that was built for the fair and um you know, I suppose back then the audience would have been aware of that. I believe it still does exist in St. Louis now, but St. Louis is unfortunately a very different city to what it was back then. I think there's two or three um, buildings still around from that place. Yeah, and I believe the zoo that they had there yeah. is still there, which is great. And you can – there are – um, I was watching, actually, unfortunately, some crude, true crime documentary that was in St. Louis, and um, the part of St. Louis that I went to wasn't that part, but you can still see the greenery and the park and all that sort of stuff from from where this was set up. So, essentially, you know, the film is split up into sort of mini-stories set around the girls. So, it's Judy Garland and her sisters and her family, 
you know, the girls, her and her older sister are navigating, you know, life and love. Her um, eldest, uh, the eldest sibling, the only boy in the family, Lon Jr., he's going off to college. And But, you know, back then there was a big thing about preparing for marriage and the boy next door and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, there were the two beautiful little sisters and the grumpy maid and the well-to-do mum and the hoity-toity dad and all the rest of it. So lots of your sort of staple characters of films in there. But we also, this film's a musical as well. So it's not necessarily a linear story. It's just a set of snapshots out of the year in their life. You know, there's a big set piece on Halloween with the two younger sisters. And then of course, Christmas, spring. Yeah. And be- some beautiful songs. I feel like when they were planning the Brady Bunch, uh, <laughs> the writer probably had uh, that film a lot in mind because a lot of the, uh, how should I put it? The, especially with the adults, the, that, uh, the energies of different uh, characters. So like you had talked about the uh, smart talking maiden and stuff that all seems to be repeated in the Brady Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, actually you're right. Ambie Davis's character. Yeah. It was very similar to the maid in, in this film. And I mean, it was such a, it's such a gorgeous film. It's shot in Technicolor, uh, you know, the, the colors, the, the palette of the film is beautiful. Even the girl's hair, that auburn sort of hair, her, the, the two younger girls don't have it, but um, Judy Garland and the actress playing her sister, they have this beautiful coloured hair and these dresses and everything's so opulent and you just can't help but fall in love with the whole thing because it's so stunning. This is one of the first roles where Judy Garland actually got to portray a woman because uh, in, a, in an adult sense because the studios tried to basically keep her as a child for ages. Yeah, and also um, I was watching just a small excerpt of an interview with Liza Minnelli, of course, um, Judy Garland and Vincent Minnelli's uh, only child and and, uh, Judy's eldest daughter, and she said that obviously it's her favourite film because that's where her parents really spent their first lot of time together and and fell in love and, and then got married and had her. So she's like, why wouldn't I love this film? But the other thing that she also said, Um, all joking aside was that her dad had actually photographed and presented her mother as a woman for the first time in her career and helped her make that transition to some older roles even though she was essentially playing an older teenager in the film it's better than playing someone 12 or 13. Yeah well uh, when you think of uh, how she was portrayed in um, Wizard of Oz it's which was uh, about six years earlier so it's quite Mm. a difference yeah it is and you know a lot look a lot of you know um older uh, teenage or you know into the mid-20s they're often playing 16 year olds that that still happens quite a lot now but I suppose it's just trying to make that step over into playing adult characters and we were actually discussing this before we went on air that a lot of um children don't make that switch and and probably the person in this film who played the fantastic character of Tootie and actually got a an honorary academy award was Margaret O'Brien and she was uh, absolutely fantastic in this film but she never really made the transition she did a bit of tv when she was older but largely retired and had a family yeah and like it seems like you have to uh because your adult self and your child self are two different people so you almost have to approach your career anew yes I mean uh some people do uh, do the transition successfully and they can be through both your uh, how you uh, change as a person and obviously it probably helps to have contacts from earlier in life but sometimes it's just a luck of the draw into mm. how well you can transition and unfortunately we've seen many examples of where people haven't gone that um, 
Well, for purely professional reasons, uh, sometimes others, unfortunately, may get caught up in uh, sort of uh, not knowing how to cope with being an adult, and they may fall into the party scene. Uh, mm. uh, so, yeah, that's uh, an unfortunate side effect sometimes. It uh, it makes you think um, if a, uh, you have a child and they say you want they want to be an actor, like, uh, even assuming they succeed, like... Uh, do you want them to be at risk of a future like that? Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, a lot of them are mistreated on set. They're not treated the best. And, you know, there's been a whole spate of, um, you know, people who are now like my age and a bit older, like Corey Haim, Corey Feldman, that came out and said some of the horrible experiences they had as children actors. And it's really a shame because Margaret O'Brien is fantastic in this film and she steals a lot of it just because she's so cute, especially the Halloween sequence that they do in this film. How did you find the Halloween sequence? Because I found that to be... um uh, like the because the like you said before the film's basically divided into quarters the mm. four seasons I found the autumn one was the one uh, segment uh, like I said around Halloween yeah. where it's a sort of a uh, seemed a little strange to me. Like maybe it's because it's using Halloween traditions that have gone out of fashion, but it just felt a bit uh, unusual what yeah. they were getting up to. In yeah, that Halloween now is about junk food and this and that, and just being a bit crazy and running around the streets. But I guess back then there was a lot more folklore to it, like the bonfire and. Um, it was kind of very Lord of the Flies ish. Yeah, and um, even the way they were dressed, and you know, Tootie had this. You know, she was dressed like a little a little man. And she had this big long coat on and the fact that they went out onto the street just on their own with the other kids and you know they're all under about the age of 10 or so and they're all just out there you know near this bonfire and now that just would not happen the parents would not let the kids out like that but I just thought that that was one thing that struck me because when the the mother sent um Agnes and Tootie off oh have fun girls I was like oh so she's not sort of supervising them and they I mean it was a much different time no one was expected to get grabbed off the street or anything even though those things did happen but um yeah I think the perception was that you only had to be careful when you were in a very um, rough inner city. Uh, Mm. It's like how they kept talking about going into tenements when they moved to New York, but the... Obviously, they live in a very idyllic community there in the that nineteen hundred suburb, uh, big houses with um, pretty stained glass windows, and they think what could go wrong. Yeah, that's right. And I guess looking at the way the houses were then, a lot of them still had you know um, gas uh, light lamps in the house. Um, how how much would the doors have locked properly anyway? So I guess you were still sort of really out in the open, and you had to trust your neighbours back then, and you did. Um, but the music in this film is fantastic, as Matt said. A very very faint a song that you know lots of musical stars today and singers today sing have yourself a merry little christmas which i wasn't sure how that fit into the movie i thought that she she was going to sing it with the whole family around her but it was just her and tootie it was quite moving but i sort of thought it would be this big set piece at the end when they were all at the fair or something but uh, of course the trolley song yeah and the film it, look it is a bit weird because it doesn't start somewhere and finish somewhere but and yet it does because the girls you know go through all these stages of love with their partners and getting married and you know the brothers off at college and the little girls are growing up so it does start somewhere and it does finish somewhere it just has has this very because it's just told through a story a, a series of little fables and little vignettes so it's not it's not start finish it's just like la 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 we're at halloween we're doing this we're going to the fair and then it all works out at the end yeah well the saint louis fair it's not really the uh, 
the purpose of the story. It's the the MacGuffin. It's that um. It's that inanimate um, uh, X plot element that is the the big deal guiding the behavior of all the actors. Mm. Uh, because it kind of represents a microcosm their t- their hometown. Yes. Uh, but it's uh for the um. Uh, audience, the bigger deal is uh, what's going on with the uh, actors in the household. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so the musical score for the film was adapted by Roger Edens and he was also one of the producers as well. So some of the songs in the film are very well-known songs that were historically around back then at the time of the St. Louis exposition. And then there were others written for the movie. So meet me in St. Louis or St. Louis was, um, written for the film. That's obviously starts the film off the boy next door that was performed by Judy Gallen in the film. Um, and then there's ones like skip to Malou and stuff, which are sort of older classic ones. The trolley song was written for the film. And then of course, um, have yourself a merry little Christmas written by Hugh Martin and Ralph Blaine. So, I mean, that song, I mean, I hear that in the, in the pharmacy that I work in, I hear that song. Mariah Carey is earning her royalties now (laughs) at this time of year. That's right. Although, yeah, I have to say that um, All I Want for Christmas is You, that is that is a great Christmas song. But, um, yeah, so just, you know, songs that we know and we love. And this is just – I actually think a lot of little kids would get a lot of enjoyment out of this just because of the character of Tootie and how out there she is. Although didn't Margaret O'Brien, who's one of the last remnants of the golden Hollywood period, it's only the very young – people now who were you know who were children at the time when all that was going on now they're in their sort of 80s um she was saying that she was someone had plotted to kidnap her or something I was reading because even though she's sort of been away from the limelight every once in a while she'll come out with a story of what what happened well people Um, do crazy things I mean uh, somebody tried to kidnap Princess Anne uh, all those decades later yeah it's just um uh amazing but look it was um very well received it was the second highest grossing film of the year and it's just you know a fun film it's a little silly but a little serious in some parts too and everyone in the film is just great Uh, it was nice to see June Lockhart who was playing the sort of the other girl on the scene uh, with the sisters she was playing Lucille Um, she actually because we joke about Matt being the Jonathan Harris of this podcast and Jonathan Harris of course was the guest star every week on Lost in Space and June Lockhart was the mother on Lost in Space so it was nice to see her um, I really saw the connection of dots like that. You did just then as well. <laughs> hey, I haven't yet mentioned Larry. I don't think I can mention Larry in these films other than the fact that he loved Christmas and dressing up like Santa Claus. So I'm sure he watched them at some point. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure... Um, I'm sure he, um, um, with his mother being such a big musical star, I'm sure she had a crack at singing a lot of these songs because she had the voice and, and Larry didn't. So if we jump over to our next very famous Christmas movie, and I think I've seen one of the remakes of this with Mara Wilson in it. it came out in the 90s, but it's um, and it's a film that can be remade because you can adapt it to modern audiences. It's Miracle on 34th Street, uh, 1947. And we're going from, the deep hues of technicolor into a black and white story although that worked i could imagine it in color but uh, i think it worked pretty well for this film so what were your initial thoughts on this 1947 film matt well i'd only ever till now 
till this past week seen the one made with uh, in the nineties with the with the girl from Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah, and, I think it's uh, Mara Wilson. I think her name yeah, is. Yeah, and uh, and uh, Richard Attenborough mm. as Santa Claus. Obviously, I've uh, researched the character name so well. Yeah, um, <laughs> and the actor name so well. Um, but I so. Uh, I d- didn't have as high expectations. I thought um, me means so that would be my favorite, but no. Um, I really love Miracle on Thirty Fourth mm. Street. It's such well, uh, well, it's so um, uh, heart heart pulling. I like um yeah. the 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 sentiment that uh brings it forth because uh, this is kind of the first um that first period where um Santa Claus as we know him was becoming the the consumer cliche because uh, it will it wasn't really until maybe the 1920s onwards that we he came to know Santa as the the red wearing uh, gift bearer and actually a lot of the his traditional costume that we think of now is thanks to Coca-Cola's ads uh, yeah. because they dressed him up in um his, their company colors. colors yes that's true uh, yep. like uh, the place that uh, St. Nicholas has had in uh, Christmas has uh, varied a, a lot over many centuries in different places. Like in the 19th century in parts of Eastern Europe, it used to be a thing to have somebody dressed as him with um, sort of pretend demons going around. Oh, okay. Because if you see a <laughs> production of the Nutcracker, that's how they show him, uh, He because he's walking around with these demons, because like he's such a great virtuous character, he's able to uh, make demons feel the, feel the joy of giving. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, so there's a lot of folklore around um, Santa, St. Nicholas, you know, lots of different Western countries and obviously other um, Eastern countries would have their own version of this type of gift-giving um, person that comes around, not at Well, Christmas you know what time. the origin of Santa actually was? Uh, because there was a real person called uh, Nicholas, I believe, who lived in what is now Turkey and yeah. apparently out of a random act of charity, he secretly donated uh, to a poor man on the dowries for his uh, several daughters which was quite a big deal because uh, uh, it was like what you needed to get married and uh, because without that it was they'd have been sold into slavery mm. we are to- we are talking like um i think pre-roman times oh wow okay so it's sort of a fable that sort or of ma- kicked maybe off and the point is it was a yeah. long time ago yeah um so this is a Christmas classic. It is something that's always, especially in the US, it's replayed, you know, on all the old film networks as Christmas comes up. So essentially the story is Edmund Gwen um, is an old man, Chris Kringle, going around New York City. And at the last minute, he has to fill in for the usual Santa at the very famous St. Macy's annual Thanksgiving Day Parade because that Santa's intoxicated and doesn't really care. So this guy steps in and he's a hit uh, because when he's appearing he's then hired to be like the in-store Santa and speaking to all the kids and then he starts telling the customers oh well if we don't have it here you should go somewhere else and rather than that off-putting the customers the customers like well thanks for that I actually got sort of what I needed and I think this is a great store if you can recommend going other places and you don't mind sharing the business around and then he actually Chris's character so Edmund Gwen's character says he actually is really Santa Claus and then we we get into sort of a bit more of a serious time with a court case to determine his mental health and then you know is he or is he not Santa Claus and there's definitely a big question mark about that I don't understand why the lawyer defending him, who's uh, Maureen O'Hara's love interest, why don't they just go to the court registry office and have him legally change his name to Chris Kringle? <laughs> Problem solved. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, but one of the great things about this film, it, well, Edmund Gwen is fantastic and the sentiment of this film is fantastic and there are some serious sort of, you know, talking about people's mental health, their capacities, what they believe in, what they choose to believe in, um, your, your attitude towards certain things. But I really think Natalie Wood, a lot like Margaret O'Brien, was the show, show st- scene stealer in this film. I mean, she was fantastic. She played this haughty little girl so well and didn't agree with playing with the kids because they made stuff up and uh she was fantastic and she you forget that she was only 43 when she accidentally drowned and obviously the events of that are still um suspicious to this day um let's just hope that until um around let's just hope that this part of her life was a good period yeah that it was now we do know that her parents were russian immigrants and her mother in particular was very determined to see her daughter become a star and she did and so I, you don't know if that's played into some of Natalie's health challenges and some issues, you know, especially when she remarried Robert Wagner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but her mother was a very pushy stage mother and that is a very well-known fact. So she was acting and modelling since she was a young girl. I guess they're immigrants. They, you know, her mother saw the chance at making money, stardom, and Natalie certainly did that. But I think sometimes that gets overshadowed by the fact that she was a really good little performer and a good actress, a good child actress. Yeah. I mean, uh, the performances by Edmund and Maureen and all those are great, but uh, for this is one film where the child actor really uh, pulls it along because, like, sometimes, um, like, that's what's hard to find, I think, with uh, child actors is that because, naturally, because they're children, they may not sort of have that um, special zing on, on the camera that a... a more experienced adults would have, but she did. She did, yeah, because she well, seemed to... Well, that's the dictionary, yeah. the zing. <laughs> well, she did have that zing because, you know, let's face it, a lot of children, are they just imitate how the adults tell them to say the lines, and that's that's fine, you know, but she seemed to have a real understanding of what her... At least it came across on the screen. I'm sure she was coached, but um, of what her character was, how she was, and, you know... And her sort of changes in the film, and that shows a lot of a lot of maturity. Um, you know, you, I can't think of any like modern day. I mean, there were like, the last spate of really good child actors like were back in sort of the nineties, as far as I'm concerned. You had um, we mentioned like Mara Wilson and some of the people that worked with her. You know, she was great. Haley Joel Osment. I mean, you know, he still does act now, but the gravitas he had as a child it just doesn't. Unfortunately, hasn't seemed to translate as an adult. But well, Macaulay Culkin was. Uh... Uh, great, yeah. but that was in um, more of a, a comic slapstick acting. It was a different quality. Uh, like Natalie Portman, even, especially, I think my favourite part of hers in the whole film was when she's in the apartment and uh, Santa's explaining to her the concept of what imagination can be and just the parts where she uh, has no lines and is just uh, sort of looking in bewilderment. Those are the parts mm. that really test you as an actor and she passed with flying collars. Yeah, exactly. And Margaret O'Brien in in um, the film previous that we were discussing, Meet Me in Saint Louis. Yeah, she was she was the same. She was actually Margaret O'Brien was saying, you know, because in the film she looked like she was crying real tears. I mean, her face was red and it was sort of matching up to her emotions and stuff. It didn't look like they just put some liquid tears in her eyes or something like that, or some peppermint or something to make her eyes well up. But she said that, um, you know, Margaret said that she felt it was a competition between her and some other actresses who was the best cry 
fire and she really wanted to do it as authentically as she could. So she was crying real tears in that film, um, you know, when she alleged that she'd been hurt or, you know, tooth got knocked out or whatever. Uh, she was crying real tears and, you know, they were taking, you know, they were doing method acting and they didn't even know they were doing <laughs> A method acting and it's just so beautiful and genuine to sort of see these two young girls absolutely stunning and beautiful one who's still with us Margaret's still with us she's 84 now um fortunately Natalie left us many years ago but you know just to see these two beautiful kids really steal the show and I'm not saying that they couldn't be bratty and all the rest of it. I'm sure they probably could hanging around with a lot of adults because the two of them made a lot of films when they were kids. But it just, I don't know, there was some, there's something really genuine about the two of them that you don't see anymore. So for on the basis of seeing the two girls in these films, I highly recommend both of them. You'll get different things out of both films, but yeah. Yeah. Did, did you have a favourite out of the two? Um, I... Well, probably just meet me in St. Louis just because of the, the musical stuff that I loved and also because I love Halloween. There was a big Halloween sequence in that. But I have to say that I enjoyed Miracle on 34th Street a lot more than I thought I was going to. I don't know, for some reason I thought it wouldn't really interest me, but it, it, it really did. But what interested me in the film was probably mostly Natalie's character. I really um, loved her character in the film. I love the two little girls in these films because they were just so cute and, you know, the outfits that they had on, even like how Tootie was dressed and her sisters were dressed and like when they went swimming and the whole apparel that they had to wear and you just think back, I don't know, like I'm very much sort of a modern woman. I'm very much a tomboy. But I look back at those times and I'm, I know there was oppression for women and I know, but it just seemed a lot more simpler and straightforward for a woman back then. And there's something sort of comforting about that because it's almost like being a woman now and I'm very much the essence of a modern woman. You know, I'm the least sort of domesticated woman that you can get. But I look back then and I sometimes think to myself, it doesn't necessarily mean it was a bad way to live. Well, I think well, even for both uh, men and women as well, life was treated at that time kind of like when you re open a biology book and you're reading the life cycle of a butterfly or mm. a or a frog going from the tadpole to the to the pond and everything. And like it, I think everybody was just uh, taught that um life was meant to follow that same uh, very clear clear cycle. And there there were certain um, unique qualities of happiness tied into that way of life mm. that you just don't have now. Yes, agree. Uh, but um, so and like it, it we tend hindsight is twenty twenty. We tend to always um, uh, view it the further you go back, the 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 worse the worse it is. But like uh, most people do tend to look back fondly on their own time. Yeah, it's so almost it's like now of... women seem to have too many options and they're just pulled in too many different directions. And it's... Well, I'm not going to fall into the, <laughs> to the Handmaid's Tale no, trap. No, that's uh, fine. I'll, 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 yeah. leave, I'll, I'll leave you to yeah. deal with the, with the, yeah. with the Twitter um, bombardment yeah. for that. No, no, that's fine. But, you know, I can say this as, as a woman. and um, But it just, you know, you knew what you had to do and you just got on and you just did it. And even though there were probably tough things and there was discrimination and all the rest of it 
every woman was kind of in the same boat back then. So you just got on and did it. And I understand there was also, you know, other racial discriminations and other elements that were not sort of addressed in these films. I, I completely understand that. But there was also, yeah, I never, I always remember working at a job and I was speaking to a working mother on the phone and she even said to me, cause she was trying to balance out care for her kids and this and that. She was running to and from her job and trying to pick her kids up. And she even said to me, she said, you know, sometimes this li- women's liberation thing hasn't worked out exactly exactly the way we wanted it to because I think uh, you know even for men it's hard enough to come to work and then come home and try to be a part of the household but especially for women because there's that such pull to be with your children and just be there for them all the time and unfortunately financial issues now and stuff mean that that's not always possible so it really often is so but it's just nice you know knowing what you have to do and you just get on and do it I, I guess so but then like uh, I hope one film we'll get to one day do is um, Carrie, which had mm. um, uh, Lawrence Olivia in it, and that kind of shows though how uh, if you um, by uh, any kind of accident or certain choices are, are made uh, uh, out of necessity, if uh, they can, um, if that could send you off the. Uh, bad path if you couldn't quite fit the mold at the time yeah well that would be probably applicable to me i probably would have ended up living some sort of albert knobs sort of lifestyle dressing up as a man (laughs) but um you know just because that my natural interests and stuff would probably be in more masculine dominated areas and even though i've tried them in my life there's they don't want a girl around in a mechanic shop and stuff so it you know obviously and i'm in my 40s too it might be different now for a girl in her 20s but um yeah so i that was something i kind of found interesting with the film although maureen o'hara's character she was quite seemed like a bit of a go-getter and a bit of a career woman too so yeah I was actually impressed the, the how um, open they were that um, Maureen O'Hara's character was um, d- divorced and like mm, the, the uh, mm. daughter herself open, uh, said that that was how it happened because uh, at that period, um, uh, and this was actually why um, the film got apparently a uh, like a B rating or something by the Catholic Legion of Decency, oh, which was okay. like this huge... Um, a ratings classification board the church had at the time. Right. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, they didn't have some flimsy pretext of... Because, like, I think this was made shortly after World War Two, so they, they could have just easily said, mm. I don't have a dad, he he died in, mm. per, in uh, Pearl Harbor or mm. something. Yeah, yeah, actually, you're, you're right about that. And even though these two films were made within years of each other, they're set in very different eras. One is actually... Uh, you know, contemporary to the time it was made, Miracle on 34th Street, and then, of course, Meet Me in St. Louis. It was set 40 years before the film was shot. So um, It seems yeah. so distant to us now, but what do you think? Well, that's just like a film now been set in the 80s. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and, and things have changed a lot, and I can attest to that quite a lot since then. You know, there were still a lot of stay-at-home mums back in the 80s, and now that's not really, you know, but it's also a, a matter of finances and how the world's changed as well. So, uh, But two outstanding films for different reasons, and... And if you like a good, feel-good Christmas film, even though there are some sad parts in these films, I think you'll get them from Miracle on 34th Street and um, Meet Me in St. Louis. Well, I won't say what, but I've seen uh, uh, or overseen a few newer Christmas films made on streaming services that will shall but remain nameless. And I'm like, <laughs> um, who wrote these? Like, they're, yeah. they're, they're like kids. They're like... Mm. About, they're like kids' films made for adults, and I'm like, God, 
how did how did um the actors and the crew and the set designers and everything get together and uh, and not at some point say what are we doing? Yeah, this is crap. I mean, I don't mind because I can't stand a lot of even though I do watch horror films, but I guess that's a, a particular type of genre. But modern films, I just can't stand all the swearing. I can't stand all the senseless violence that doesn't mean anything to anyone. So well, this is the complete opposite yeah. of Vicky, but it, it's yeah. it's like such a yeah. So I think the films that that, film. that Matt's are talking about are like the Hallmark or the Lifetime Channel in the US. Their sorts of films, and they're actually their films are the only films. I can really watch modern films that I can watch now because they don't demand anything of you. you. Just sort of sit there and oh yeah, whatever. And a lot of actors I like are in these films, so I just oh yeah, that's him. Oh yeah, I loved him back in the day. So that's the only reason I watch them. But they don't really demand anything of you. But I, I have to say, I have to get dragged to go to the cinema now. I mean, hence the reason we started this podcast. But I just do not watch any modern films now. I just don't enjoy any of them. Well, there certainly there have been um, less that I felt uh, in recent times that I must see. Like yeah. I, when, when I think of it, I probably the last film that I had the real urge to see on my own was uh, A Girl on a Train, and that's like almost five years ago now. Yeah, I think there's only one film I think I'm looking forward to, and that, I think that's the new Top Gun film, and that's simple. I think it'll – I can't imagine it'll be like the first one, but uh, it's I just – I see the original. Yeah, it's, um, it's just for nostalgia. I mean – you know, Top Gun's just like an overlong music video, but it's, you know, very much, it's 1986, it's very much of the time, reminds me of when I was a kid. So I will see that, but honestly, I think my sister's trying to drag me to something on Boxing Day, and I'm just like, oh, she goes, I'll give it a chance, it'll be all right. You know, I'm like, it's set in the 80s, so I think I will give it a chance. But, um, yeah, whereas with these older films, yeah, it's really only like modern TV, made-for-TV films I can watch now. I really cannot watch anything at the cinema, so that's why it's great to have all these great old films to watch. Yeah, well, I guess it's a, a sort of an unwritten rule that quality long-term tends to follow where the money is, so just... Mm. Uh, uh, sniff out the gold and find the quality at the end. <laughs> well, thank you, everyone. We've had a lovely year chatting with you and, and thank you for joining our conversations because that's essentially what they are. Uh, we don't do these big, long, professional blah, 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 and this happened at this time. Uh, you know, there's plenty of other people out there that do those sorts of podcasts and we just love having a general chat about the films, the, the actors, the pop culture of the time. There's always so many different ways to approach films and discussions of them. It doesn't always have to be about the best directing or cinematography it can just be about a feeling that you have about a film and why you like it or an ear of a film or an actor or a director or just beautiful songs in a film that we had with one of the films that we discussed today so we will be just taking a short hiatus just you know Christmas I mean I work all through Christmas Matt has you know a lot of baking to do don't you or uh, yes, I'm uh, like uh, sort of two out of six baking items. Uh, <laughs> one, one year I got a sore back because I basically spent like, a whole month standing in the kitchen. Yeah, so Matt's a big baker. He loves it. And his whole family are amazing cooks as well. His sister, his mum and dad, his fiance, everyone's a great cook in Matt's house. A big, big kitchen that's always used. And um, I look forward to sampling your gluten-free cookies. Yes, I'm sorry. I forgot to bring the plate this morning. No. I, I had it right next to my uh, keys and wallet. And uh, like I just forgot them. I know. I hate it when I do things like that, but that's fine. I can always drop by or we'll have a quick catch up before Christmas. So we will see you shortly in the new year. We haven't sort of finalized a date. Of course, we do have our other podcast that we do, A Glimpse of Hell, which is our uh, true crime, sort of more focusing sort of on historical true crime 
figures. I think uh, it would have been harder to do a Christmas special for yeah. that one. Although I'm sure there, <laughs> I'm sure there probably is someone that we we might have a look and see if there's a New Year Christmas type of. Um, although we did have somebody in mind for our next podcast, so we will do that at the same time. Oops, sorry, I'm playing around with the microphone now. Um, yeah, and uh, we'll see you early in the new year. So we'll start the new year off strong with uh, Jimmy Cagney, James Cagney double. We are going to do Public Enemy, 1931, one of his most famous films. And then we wanted to, well, I wanted to do White Heat, but then I thought, oh, White Heat and Public Enemy are probably a little bit too similar, even though they were shot at different times in his career. Um, so we're going to do Yankee Doodle Doodle Dandy, which I did see as a child, but I, I, in 1942, which I do want to revisit. And um, yeah, it just, and hopefully just get to watch some other films over the, my downtime over the period as well and, uh, and check in with you back early in the new year. Yeah, well, I look forward to uh, getting to know more of uh, Jimmy for the next episode uh, because he he's one that has been sort of been mentioned in when by old actors uh, of uh, his generation as one of the those greats that uh, people forget about and mm. in a couple of uh, situations uh, like on the old Parkinson type interviews and so I've been interested to get to know him better and uh, you know he was one of the handful of people that was given the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award so it's got to say something yeah for sure I mean he's you know, other than the fact that they left it too late, too late. <laughs> didn't they do that with Alfred Hitchcock as well <laughs> yes <laughs> Um, when when he when he's uh, sort of too stroked out to barely, yeah. to hold the statue award, you know you've left it a bit late. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks everybody for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us for our conversations. My numerous um, mentions about Larry Hagman that have absolutely nothing to do, mostly with the podcast. Uh, but you know that's just the way it goes. Yeah. Well, I can't believe this is now our second Christmas special. I know. We started this at the start of the pandemic, or just as it was unfortunately kicking off, if you want to use that as a term. And uh, it's just something we enjoy doing anyway. And you know, hopefully, we'll start getting a bit more into different social media things that we can have a bit more conversations. We'd actually love to have a chat with some of you about your favourite films and stuff. So, in the meantime, as always, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year however you choose to celebrate it. I'm Rachel. I am Matthew. And we're watching good movies. Thank you and all the best.